Uh, Jim Clark has written uh, a popular book on business management called Good to Great, uh, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. For five years, he studied companies that didn't just make a profit, but that consistently, over a 15-year period, had performed at least three times better than the market average. And his question was, what makes them great? And he identified seven common characteristics. But the most important one was that they were all led by what Jim Collins called level five leaders. Level five leaders. Now, uh, level five leaders uh, were not just competent individuals, that's level one of being a good worker. Uh, they weren't even contributing team members, that's level two. And they were more than competent managers, that's level three. And they were also more than being effective leaders, that's level four. So what made someone a level five leader? Well, Collins' findings were extraordinary. He found that the very best leaders, that is the most effective at building uh, long-term health in their organisation, uh, in his words, had a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. The very best leaders had a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They were determined to see their company do well and they threw everything they had into it, but they combined that with a personal humility that recognised, valued, included and improved the people around them. Uh, they inspired people with their example and their standards rather than their charisma and their talk. Level 5 leaders were modest and determined. They were shy but fearless. He found that the very best leaders of the best companies weren't those who had the big egos and the big personalities. It, it wasn't the alpha leaders. A company that was built around a leader like that might grow big, might grow quickly, but it was unstable. Success was often short-term and depended largely on the leader hanging around. His findings were unexpected. They were surprising even to him. They went against conventional wisdom and management theory. Although it's perhaps not so surprising for those of us who understand what Jesus teaches here in John 13. Because that's exactly the sort of leadership Jesus wants his church built on. Although he didn't call it level five leadership, did he? He called it servant leadership. And I reckon that definition fits pretty well. A paradoxical combination of personal humility and determined will. Uh, it shouldn't surprise us, but does it describe us? Does it describe us? A paradoxical combination of personal humility and determined will. Are we willing to live out that sort of lifestyle so that we can play our part in God's kingdom, in making his kingdom great rather than just good? Let's watch Jesus closely. Let's listen to what he says. He's given us an example to follow and he promises that we'll be blessed if we do it. It's the night before Jesus' death. It's his last chance to prepare his disciples. Uh, we're beginning what's called the farewell discourse. It goes on for 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Uh, and there are going to be plenty of words spoken this night. But he begins with an action. See there in verse 1? Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love 
Uh, It literally says he showed them his love to the end. Which, well, what does that mean? Uh, I think it's got a, well, it does have a double meaning and it's quite likely John intends it to have those two meanings. He's going to show, Jesus will show love to the maximum. He's going to show extreme love. Uh, But he's also going to show his love, uh, show love all the way to the bitter end, uh, to the final conclusion, uh, to the culmination. Uh, It's love that's going to be shown in the simple act of washing feet, but it's also extreme love. Uh, It represents love that's going to be seen ultimately on a cross. Love sacrificed. And as we witness his demonstration of love, there's lots of different aspects we can look at. But I want to think not so much about his words or even about the action itself, but I want to think about three things that Jesus was thinking, three things that he knew. Uh, And they were thoughts that could have led him down another path uh, rather than the one he chose. Thoughts that brought with them temptations. Temptations to do something other than express love. Temptations to choose an easier or a safer or a more human option. So I wonder if you can find them. Here we have a little quiz here. See if you can find three things that Jesus knew. Tell me what verse they're in and what it was that he knew. Big voice. Three things. Can you find one? What's the, where's the first one? Joel. He knew who was going to Yep, yeah, that's how you picked the last one. Down in verse 11, he knew who was going to betray him. Yeah, so that's, that's the one John mentioned. So he, he knew who was going to betray him, but Jesus still washed his feet. Okay, so there's, a, there's the third one. Oh, there's two more. Where's another one? Verse 3, that's the second one. Uh, he knew that his father had put all things under his power. So he got up and washed feet. It's interesting, isn't it? And where's the first one? Verse 1. It's too obvious, is it? No one wants to point it out because it's too obvious. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave his world, uh, to to leave this world and go to his Father. So he showed them love. Okay, that's good. So we're going to think about those three things. So firstly, verse 1, Jesus knew his hour had come. His time was up. Something better was just around the corner. He could have turned his thoughts to that glorious homecoming and forgotten about what he was leaving behind. I don't know whether you've ever uh, had a new job and you've had to sort of serve out your time in the old job. It's really easy to just sort of switch off from where you are and just start focusing about what's ahead. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, what was ahead motivated him to make sure he finished the task. That everything was finished just as his father had planned it. He knew he was returning home So he showed his disciples who were going to stay behind the full extent of his love. He needed to get them ready for life without his physical presence. Uh, Being near to God didn't separate him from his disciples. It actually drew him nearer to them because he wanted to prepare them. Well, the second thing Jesus knew is there in verse 3. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God, So he got up, took off his clothing and wrapped the towel around his waist. It's interesting, isn't it? He'd been given all authority. Rulers, priests, soldiers, disciples were to bow before him. 
evil spirits, sickness, the oceans, the wind and sin all did as he said. It literally says all power had been given into his hand. Now Jesus could have easily caused all of this trouble to go away. He had all the authority. He could have escaped the power and the suffering but instead he chose it. He wasn't a powerless pawn. Uh, He had all that power at his fingertips. He chose sacrifice. He chose service. He puts down the power that had been given into his hand and instead fills his hands with a servant's tools, with a towel and a uh, a wash basin. That's the character of Jesus. Power and humility. Majesty and a gentle love. They're not contradictory. Uh, It wasn't he had power, but he nevertheless uh, picked up the towel. It it was because he had power he chose to do this. They're they're not contradictory. They're two colours in the same painting. And it sounds a little like a level five leader, doesn't it? A paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. And John is telling us what Jesus knew to show something of his love, the depth of his love, that a king as majestic as Jesus would wash the feet of his disciples. What's the second fact? The third fact is down there in verse 11. Joel picked it up, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Despite knowing how the evening was going to finish, despite knowing by whose hand he would be betrayed, Jesus showed them the depth of his love, a love that even extended to traitors. There was no bitterness, there was no retribution, there was only love. There was no pointing the finger, there was no avoiding God's plan, there was only obedience. He even washed Judas's feet. Imagine that. Knowing what Judas was thinking, but washing his feet anyway. He showed his love for Judas to the end, to the max. It's incredible, isn't it, that Jesus could show such love. But if you think that's incredible, don't think that the love Jesus shows for you is any different. We are no more deserving than Judas. We have betrayed and failed to stand up for Jesus too. But what's cool about it is because he washed Judas's feet, we can be confident that he loves us as well, no matter how little we feel we deserve it. So Jesus knew all of these things as he began to wash his disciples' feet. So let's think about that action. It was the job of a household slave. There was no slave to do it, and so Jesus did it. Not just despite knowing all of these things, but actually because he knew all of those things. It's easy to imagine an embarrassed silence, I think, as Jesus works his way around the room. Maybe the disciples are sort of looking awkwardly at each other. Except for Peter, of course. Typical Peter, he sees Jesus getting closer and he he blurts out, verse 6, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? It's just not right. Jesus says, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but later you will. We'll come back to Peter in a moment, but when Jesus finishes washing everyone, including Judas, 
He takes off the towel, he empties the muddy water, he puts his robe back on and then he sits back down at the table. And, every, uh, and in verse 12 he says, Do you understand what I've done for you? Not just what I've done, but do you see the point? Do you, see what I'm, what, what, uh, do you understand what it all means? My guess is they had no idea, so Jesus continues with, I suggest, one of the three lessons that we can learn from his actions. We've already thought about the first lesson. Verse 1, Jesus did it to display his love. Great displays of love are seen in doing unlovely things. The difficult, the smelly, the unpopular things. Husbands, love is seen in the unlovely things you do. Serving your wife, it may be a greater display of love to change a nappy, to wash the dog, to clean the bathroom than it is to take out, uh, take her to a nice restaurant or buy her a bunch of flowers. The restaurant, the flowers are easy, but doing the yucky things, the unpopular things, the messy things, show love. So Jesus washed feet as a display of his love. That's the first thing it means. Uh, Jesus' second lesson is there in his conversation with Peter. Verse 6, washing feet is a symbol. It's a symbol of a different type of cleansing, of saving cleansing. Remember, Peter has seen Jesus working his way around the table and he, 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 says, he warns him, he says, it's not right for you to wash my feet. No way, verse 8, never. But Jesus says, look at his, what he replies, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. What he's not saying is that unless Peter lets him wash his feet, he's no longer in the group. That's not what he means. There's, this conversation is going on at two levels. He's talking about more than just foot washing. Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. He, he's talking about the, the washing of forgiveness that'll come through his death and resurrection. That's the sort of washing that really counts. Peter didn't think that it was right for a master to wash the feet of his follower. That was a job for a servant. But Jesus' point is it's the only way that cleansing can happen. Unless I wash you clean of your sin, you, can, you can't be one of my followers. You have to be cleaned and it's something you can't do for yourself. No one can be a follower of Jesus simply by following his example. That doesn't make you a follower. It doesn't matter how many foot washings you do or how many good deeds, or how much money you give, unless Jesus washes you clean, you don't belong to him. You can't buy it, you can't earn it, you don't deserve it. Jesus has to wash you clean. That's what he's saying. So that's the question for you. Have you allowed Jesus to wash you clean? He loves you no matter what you've done. He wants to wash you clean, but you have to allow him. Peter's response. It's interesting, isn't it? He thinks he's going to miss out. Oh, I don't want to miss out. Well, wash all of me, he says. Uh, give me a whole bath, verse 9. Uh, then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. But Peter's misunderstood again. He thinks that if a foot washing is good, then an extra wash must be even better. But he's missed the point again. Jesus... Foot washing isn't the method of, being, of him being cleansed. It's only a symbol. 
It's a picture of what Jesus' death in our place achieves, the forgiveness that he brings. Jesus says, because Peter's already been cleansed on the inside, he doesn't need this bath all over. Verse 9. Once God has forgiven someone, they're already clean. What's the message? Well, it's that not only can't you wash yourself clean of sin, but once Jesus does it, you can't improve on Jesus' washing. There's nothing extra you can do that's better than what Jesus has done when he forgives you. Extra good works won't do it. New methods, new techniques make no difference. Qualifications or titles add nothing. Reading the Bible from cover to cover won't make you cleaner. Praying for hours a day won't make you any better. Most of those are probably good things to do, but you can't improve on a verdict of innocent. There's no extra innocent. There's no innocent plus plus. It's like being half pregnant. There's no such thing. You either are innocent or you're not innocent. But that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do. We're called to imitate Jesus because we're washed clean. And that's the third lesson we can learn. That's the third thing that his action means. Uh, He's offering us, verse 13, a model, a model of Christian conduct, an example to follow. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. The logic is this, if the boss does the dirty jobs, then who are the servants to think that it's beneath them? If the managing director is willing to get his hands dirty, then what right does the assistant have to refuse? Jesus wants us to humbly serve those around us, following his example. Jesus, who had all power given into his hand, but laid aside. Well, Jesus had to demonstrate it because it's so unnatural. It's such an unnatural thing to do. The world is built around hierarchies, and every society has them. It doesn't matter whether you're in the east or the west. It doesn't matter whether you're in the north or the south. Every society is built on systems of honour and dignity and power and people climb the various ladders of education or money or age uh, so that they have more and more choice about what they'll say yes to or what they'll say no to, what they will or won't do. Uh, Listen to this quote by a guy called William Barclay. The world is full of people who are standing on their dignity when they ought to be kneeling at the feet of their brothers. In every sphere of life, this desire for prominence This unwillingness to take a subordinate place wrecks the scheme of things. A player in a team is, for one day, omitted from the team and he won't play anymore. An aspirant for political office is passed over for some office to which he thought he had a right and he refuses to accept any subordinate office. In any society it may happen that someone is given a quite unintentional slight and he either explodes in anger or broods in sulkiness for days afterwards. I wonder if any of that strikes a bit close to home for you. 
That's the way of the world. We see it in politics, in workplaces, in sporting teams and unfortunately we often see it in the church as well. An admirer once asked the great orchestra conductor Leonard Bernstein what was the most difficult orchestral instrument to play and here was his answer. Second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists but to find someone who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that's a problem. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. You see what he's saying? In orchestras, in like most spheres, there's a whole lot of pride. No one wants to take second place. What sort of people do we need in churches? The church needs leaders. The church needs teachers, sure. But above anything else, a church needs people willing to play second fiddle, willing to serve, willing to do it humbly and lovingly without anybody noticing. That's the way to get harmony in church. Some churches are full of little spot fires of hurt, bitter people. People who feel they deserve to be treated a certain way, who've earned it, but feel they haven't been respected the way they should. It's really just pride. Someone is overlooked and offended, doesn't get some sort of thanks and decides, well, fine, see if I'll ever put my hand up to do something again. Demanding praise rather than just resting content that they're serving God more concerned for their reputation and their feelings than whether they're following Jesus or not. But it shouldn't be like that, should it? One of my friends who's a minister in a church was listening to one of these sorts of people complaining about something or other at, at their church and finally he blurted out, friend, it's not all about you. Now I've probably thought about saying that sometimes but he, he actually said it. Now, church, it's not all about you. Maybe that should be our new motto. Ashfield Presbyterian Church, it's not all about you. It probably won't be very popular, though. But isn't that basically what Jesus is saying here? It's not all about you. William Barclay concludes, When we're tempted to think of our dignity, our prestige, our place, our rights, let us see again the picture of the Son of God wrapped in a towel and kneeling at his disciples' feet. But what does it mean? What does it actually look like to follow Jesus' example, to wash each other's feet? Well, what it doesn't mean is that we should have a public foot-washing ceremony on the annual anniversary of something or other, like a certain church does. It's hard to imagine a bigger example of missing the point, isn't it? There's always a temptation to reduce a principle down to a ritual. Jesus, Jesus says in verse 15, I've set you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. He doesn't say that you should do what I've done for you. He's not saying, follow my example. See how I begin with the big toe and I work down and I make sure I get in between the toes and then I move down and I get it, scrub the nails really well and then I move to the 
the heel and scrub off. He doesn't say that. He's telling us about the type of thing we're to do. It's humble, loving, yucky, messy service. It's whatever is about someone else rather than about you. It might be lonely, it might be unnoticed, you might be ridiculed or ignored or overlooked or taken advantage of and perhaps even abused. That's what it means to follow the example that Jesus sets here. But notice Jesus' promise in verse 17. You'll be blessed if you do it. You'll be blessed. Keep that in mind, you won't miss out. You'll be blessed. God's good things will rain down on you when you follow his example. Now, you might get joy, you might get satisfaction or purpose or fruit, but equally as likely you might get none of that. And yet, you will be following Jesus. You'll be part of God's purposes. You'll be an instrument for his love and his blessings to flow and a means of building his kingdom. And so in that sense, you're blessing. You're blessed. Nobody else may see you or praise you, but God does. You're working for an audience of one and one day you will be blessed. You will receive a reward of a well done, good and faithful servant. So where can you be washing feet? How can you be doing that in your family, in your workplace or school, in your street, here at church? When I was at Bible college, I went to church with a guy called Warren. He was a medical doctor. He had a theology degree. He was well-educated, successful, well-off. He had a lovely family. He lived in a nice part of Sydney. He was set. But he had a heart for the schizophrenics who lived around Surrey Hills. Many of them are homeless. He set up a ministry called Ezekiel. And every week he would take off his successes, his credits, his suit and tie, his upbringing, his expensive consultations, and he would put on an apron and a pair of work boots and he'd cook a meal and run a Bible study for 20 to 30 of the people that the rest of society had no time for. He and a few other helpers would sit around and chat, occasionally help in practical ways, read the Bible, serve a meal. Sometimes it would be uncomfortable. Uh, They'd say some inappropriate things, behave in some inappropriate ways. They'd often offend your senses in various ways. But that's what washing feet looked like for Warren. That's what it meant to follow the example of his master. I wonder what it's going to look like for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see Jesus and help us to follow him. Amen.